0: The highest level of alert as stocks sink even lower over the coronavirus. The lead starts right now. New signs that the coronavirus may be ready to spread even faster in the U.S. as sports teams play in an almost empty stadium after a new outbreak. This as Vice President Pence, the man President Trump put in charge of the response to the coronavirus, is right now in Florida fundraising as the president is imagining a miracle where the virus just disappears. Plus, a tale of two Bernies, why Senator Sanders' comments in 2016 when he was chasing Hillary Clinton could come back to haunt him as the front runner.
1: This is CNN Breaking News.
0: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we begin today with breaking news and our money lead fears over the spread of coronavirus sparking another drop on Wall Street today. The Dow closing in a moment. Uh, down around 400 points today, not as bad as previous days. It is down more than 3,000 points for the week. To put that into perspective, global markets have shed more than $6 trillion in value in just the last seven days. I want to get a right to CNN's Allison Kozak of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, Alison, obviously a bad day, not as bad as previous days. But do we expect this trend to continue, this downward trend? Because the fear about a possible pandemic does not seem to be going anywhere
2: you make a very good point there, Jake. It is fear and uncertainty about the coronavirus that's driving this massive sell-off we've seen all week. And right now, the people I'm talking with are telling me the extreme trading action that we've seen all week, it really suggests investors aren't confident that the U.S. government is prepared for an outbreak of the virus in the U.S. Some traders are telling me what uh, could stop the sell-off at this point is some action or positive piece of news. Uh, the Federal Reserve Chairman, Jay Powell, he gave a stab at it a little while ago, releasing a statement uh, saying the fundamentals of the U.S. economy are strong, that the coronavirus is a risk to the economic act, uh, activity of the U.S., and that the Federal Reserve is, is monitoring developments and how they impact the economy, and that they'll use tools as necessary to support the economy. But interestingly enough, the only reaction I saw from stocks after that was that they went lower at that point. Although this is a Friday and it's unlikely investors really want to hold on to stocks as they go into the weekend just in case there's more bad news to come over the weekend. Jake?
3: And
0: Allison, obviously most Americans invest for, for decades, not for days or weeks or even months. So I assume investors are being cautioned by experts to keep their money where it is right now if they can afford to do so.
2: Yeah, I would certainly say leave it to the professionals to buy on the dips here and to day trade. You know, when you've got a market that is this volatile, most money managers will, will tell you, you know, just leave your portfolio alone at this point. So unless you're retiring tomorrow, smart money people will say don't even look at your 401k. And as we head into the weekend history, to give you some sort of food for thought as we head into the weekend, uh, history has shown uh, that the U.S. markets will bounce back. Uh, but the course, question is, When will that be and by how much? Jake?
0: All right, Alison Kosick at the New York Stock Exchange. Thanks so much. The U.S. is clearly now at the beginning of a health crisis, but though the president and his team want to convey strength and confidence, they can occasionally seem defensive. Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney even suggesting today that in order to calm the markets, Americans should just turn their televisions off for 24 hours. Mulvaney also suggesting... The Democrats and the media are trying to use the outbreak of the coronavirus to try to bring down President Trump. And he made the odd argument that the press should not have been covering the impeachment trial of the president when the outbreak began five to six weeks ago.
4: The press was was, was, was covering their their hoax of the day. The reason you're paying so, so much attention to it today is that they think this is going to be what brings down the president.
0: I seem to recall a great deal of very aggressive media coverage during the Ebola crisis during President Obama's time in office. President Trump's top campaign surrogate, Don Jr., even said this on Fox about Democrats criticizing the administration's response.
5: For them to try to take a pandemic and seemingly hope that it comes here and kills millions of people so that they could end Donald Trump's streak of winning is a new level of sickness.
0: That's the president's son saying that Democrats hope millions of Americans will die from the coronavirus. The only actual sickness here, almost 3000 people have died worldwide from the coronavirus, most of them in China. But the virus is spreading, including into the United States. The Centers for Disease Control saying there are 62 cases of coronavirus in the U.S. right now that they know of. And there are questions about how the administration has handled the crisis so far. For instance, questions about whether Trump administration officials at the State Department and at HHS made the right call when they overruled the Centers for Disease Control in allowing cruise passengers who were infected by the coronavirus to fly on planes back to the U.S. along with people who were at the very least asymptomatic. As CNN's Nick Watt reports for us now, the World Health Organization is now upping its assessment of the coronavirus to the highest level of alert.
1: One patient in serious condition in Northern California, potentially the first case of community spread in the U.S., now a focus in the fight to contain this virus.
6: Because the patient did not initially meet the criteria for coronavirus testing, the patient was not in airborne isolation.
1: So dozens of healthcare workers now quarantined and a state of emergency declared in that patient's home county. Meanwhile, at nearby UC Davis, three students now also quarantined, one of them suspected of having the virus.
6: There are probably cases of coronavirus
0: from community acquisition in multiple parts of the country right now.
1: And this confirmed case in California is now changing policy nationwide.
7: We haven't been able to test more broadly. We've had kind of a bottleneck. We haven't had enough testing sites.
1: Now more labs are online and the CDC's testing criteria radically overhauled used to be only those who had travelled to China or been in known contact with someone who tested positive.
3: Where, CDC, did you ever come up with a protocol that was restricted to people that only travelled to
8: China? I mean, come on.
1: Now, if a doctor suspects coronavirus... They can test for it. Could be the key to prevent a silent spread. Today, Washington State began testing.
8: The goal is if it's in here in the morning, mid-morning, we'll have a result by 5 o'clock that afternoon.
1: Illinois just kicked its program up a notch. We are beginning voluntary testing at select hospitals. Meanwhile, Google just canceled an upcoming summit. Amazon and J.P. Morgan advising employees against non-essential travel. Miami-Dade schools prepping to teach kids online if need be. And Green Day just postponed its tour of Asia. Overseas in Italy, a soccer game in an empty stadium and a motor show cancelled in Geneva. Best advice to all of us, wash your hands, use hand sanitizer a lot. But CVS now warning, demand may cause temporary shortages. And today, Jake, the CDC did admit that the initial rollout of the testing program did not, quote, has not gone as smoothly as we would have liked. Some of those kits were flawed. That led to delays. And it is unclear right now how many states are actually ready to start testing. But the CDC says that by the end of next week, they want every state and every local health department testing for this novel
0: coronavirus. Jake. All right. Nick Watt in California. Thank you so much. Joining me now is CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, thanks for joining us. You've you've said there are almost certainly many more cases out there that we do not know about. How widespread could this actually be?
4: I I think uh, it could be considerably more widespread, Jake. I mean, they've been testing thousands of people a day in, in South Korea, for example. Here we've tested not even a thousand in several weeks. So the surveillance just hasn't been there. And also keep in mind that around 80 percent of people who, who do have this infection have mild or no symptoms. So they wouldn't uh, you know, necessarily go to the hospital or the clinic in the first place. So I think, it, could, you know, two to three fold more, more widespread. That's why community spread starts to happen. The
0: World Health Organization is getting closer to calling this an actual pandemic. Y- you think we're basically already there. Why does that term matter?
4: Uh, I think there's two big reasons. One is that it's, uh, from a, from a resource standpoint, WHO, UN, Uh, If, if a uh, outbreak is considered a pandemic, it starts to divulge more resources, divert more resources to certain areas of, of the world and particularly areas that don't have as strong a public health infrastructure. But also Jake, you know, we're, we're still in sort of containment mode. There's this belief that maybe this can be contained uh, to certain regions of the world, uh, as opposed to mitigation mode, meaning that, okay, we know that it's in these places. We just want to slow down the spread. Uh, Once it's declared a pandemic, it sort of shifts. Uh, you know, the the, the resources and the efforts and more into this this, uh, mitigation mode. And that changes how the public health community approaches this. The
0: CDC now says that the goal is to have every state and local health department uh, able to test for coronavirus by the end of next week. That's not happening now, though.
4: It's not, I mean, and this is quite striking again, you know, I, I I hate to say this, but you know, if you look at our public health system, which I do think is one of the best in the world with regard to this particular issue of testing, uh, we're kind of near the bottom, sadly, you know, we have 10, 11 sites, seven public health sites, three DOD sites and the CDC where that testing can occur now. So someone shows up in a hospital or a clinic someplace in the world and says, look, I was just in Italy. I don't feel well, I'm worried about coronavirus. And many times they're being told by their doctors or the hospital, they can't be tested. As you point out, by the end of next week, that should change. But look, we're two months into this and and days matter, let alone weeks, Jake, when it comes to testing.
0: There's a whistleblower seeking uh, protection. Um, The whistleblower is with the Department of Health and Human Services. And he or she says that health workers uh, from HHS were sent into quarantined areas and they did not have protective equipment, they were not properly trained, they knew that they were gonna be dealing with evacuees from Wuhan and China who had been exposed right. to the virus. What does that tell you about how prepared we are? What does it mean for health workers across the US?
4: I was really surprised by this one, Jake, because there's, there's some just basic public health 101 type stuff, and that is if you're dealing with people who potentially are carrying a, a pathogen like this, Personal protective equipment, PPE. You have it, you're trained for it. That's, you know, it's stuff that we learn first year of of any kind of, uh, you know, dealing with infectious diseases. So, um, what it tells me is I think there was a, a little bit of an, obviously, an uneven sort of approach to this, maybe a minimizing of it, thinking maybe this wasn't that serious. Officials at HHS have disputed some of that whistleblower's uh, uh, complaints and, and how that person has described what happened here. But regardless, it, it, uh, it's, it's concerning. I've also talked to sources and I've asked them, look, right now, today, if, if, if health workers needed to deal with a larger outbreak, how are we doing in terms of resources? And what I'm hearing is we have maybe 10 to 30% of some of the personal protective equipment that we need. Clearly not enough. We can ramp up manufacturing of this gear quickly, but you know we're, we're not there right now if this were to uh, get quite large in terms of numbers.
0: Something else I wanted to ask you about is this Washington Post report from a few days ago. Uh, back when those Americans uh, who were infected were brought back to the United States from the Diamond Princess, that cruise line, uh, the CDC did not want those infected patients to be flown back along with passengers Who were uninfected or at the very least uh, uh, asymptomatic, but the State Department and a Trump administration health official overruled Mm -hmm. the CDC. Uh, What do you think about that?
4: Uh, I I think it's some of the 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 same sort of um, interplay, entanglement between uh, politics and science here. I mean, sadly, um, you know, there was clear science uh, in terms of how patients should be treated that were known to be infected. In the past, as you know, people who were suspicious because they had been in an area where the virus was circulating, uh, they were brought back and placed into quarantine. But prior to that cruise ship, people who had been diagnosed with the infection were stayed and stayed and were quarantined in that particular area. This case, they just totally flipped the decision and you know, there's, there's no logic to it. And again, it's part of this uneven approach. To how they, this has been handled.
0: All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you as always for your expertise. The Trump White House saying, turn off the TV. Maybe we can have a miracle, hoping the virus will just go away as critics slam the strategy or lack thereof to fight it. And the Trump White House is warned that the deal in the works with the Taliban could help a terror group declare victory. The warnings come coming from Republicans. Stay with us. Despite an uptick in coronavirus cases in the United States today, the Trump administration is trying to convey a sense of control, downplaying fears of the virus spreading widely, insisting chances of a recession are low. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, one lawmaker briefed on the coronavirus today on Capitol Hill says the Trump administration is unprepared on multiple levels.
9: As health officials around the globe rush to respond to the new cases of the novel coronavirus, the White House is continuing to downplay the risk.
8: This is not Ebola, okay? Um, and, and I'll tell you what that means in a sense. It's not
4: SARS. It's not MERS. It's not a death sentence. It's not the same as, as, as the Ebola crisis. Right.
9: There have now been 62 cases identified in the United States. Despite warnings from experts, Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney blamed the media today for
4: overstating concerns. The reason you're paying so, you're so much attention to it today is that they think this is going to be what brings down the president.
9: Although the global spread of the virus has been covered in the media for months now, Mulvaney claimed otherwise.
4: Why didn't you hear about it? What was still going on four or five weeks ago? Impeachment. And that's all the press wanted to talk about. Thank you for... Today,
9: Secretary of State Mike Pompeo also faced questions from lawmakers who were skeptical about the administration's response to coronavirus.
6: We agreed that I would come here today to talk about Iran, and the first question today is not...
9: About Iran.
3: Well, let us make it about Iran. Let me make it easier. I, I, no, We've happy, learned that I'm there's been an, an outbreak in Iran of 245 cases right. is the latest number.
9: As Congress debates a coronavirus spending bill, the House was briefed by administration officials on the latest today, though some lawmakers still had questions.
4: Everyone is scrambling
10: for information. This is potentially an enormous issue for the country, and I do not think we're prepared.
9: Despite initially putting Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar in charge, President Trump has now given that responsibility to Vice President Pence who landed in Florida earlier today for a coronavirus briefing with the governor alongside several fundraisers. As his officials insist they're prepared, the president seems to be putting his faith in a higher power as he continues to cast doubt on the opinions of experts who say it will spread in the United States.
4: One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. Yes. And from our shores, we've you know, it could get worse before it gets better. It could maybe go away. We'll see what happens.
9: Now, Jake, you saw the president sounded confident there, but it's been a blistering week on Wall Street, and that is something he has been paying incredibly close attention to, telling aides he wants them to go out there and soothe the markets, which you've seen Larry Kudlow, one of his top economic advisors, trying to do, saying today he didn't think the numbers were actually that bad, and he quoted confident, he predicted confidently, Jake, and I'm quoting Larry Kudlow now, this virus is not going to sink the American economy.
0: Okay. Larry Kudlow also, I think, earlier in the week said that the virus was contained. Caitlin Collins, traveling with President Trump. Thanks so much. Uh, let's uh, talk about this and how the president is handling this. Uh, we did the first block on the, on the health aspects. There are politics and policy proposals uh, at stake here, too. The president suggested Wednesday evening in his news conference that his administration has a handle on the cases of coronavirus. Take a listen.
4: We really think we've done a great job in keeping it down to a minimum. Uh, and again, uh, uh, we've had tremendous success, tremendous success beyond what people would have thought.
0: Mike Shields, let me start with you. I mean, after that press conference, we found out there is this new community-based case out in California, thought to be the first case in the United States of this not contracted abroad or from uh, a patient by a health care worker. Uh, what do you think of how the, the messaging is on this?
5: I think he's doing the right thing. Look, he, five weeks ago, he declared a national health emergency. That's exactly what President Obama did with the swine flu. Amazing the coverage, how glowing it was of his decisive leadership when Obama did that. President Trump it was kind of ignored because we got back to impeachment, as Mr. Mulvaney said. It was talked about, but then we went back to impeachment. He stopped flights from China, and look what's happened. Other countries that continued their flights, like Italy, are starting to have much larger amounts of this. We have hardly had any, and that's partly because of what the president did, obviously. And now he is ramping it up. He put Mike Pence, a former governor... Most of the governors are there in front line of, of dealing with the public response to this type of thing. Mm-hmm. You have a governor in charge of that who knows how to talk to governors, who's had to deal with this himself. And he's appointed himself as czar to handle it from the federal perspective. Today, they had meetings across Capitol Hill. It was their fifth meeting with Congress to be briefed on this today. Mm-hmm. So there's only been four before this. And naturally, what happens after that? Democrats come out and go, we're completely unprepared. And then you wonder why we think Democrats are cheerleading for this to be a problem. Because it immediately becomes a partisan issue and the president gets attacked, even though he's showing decisive leadership and doing exactly what President Obama did. Democrats are looking for an opportunity to attack him. And so here we are after go the ahead, races Karen. and a partisan fight again, all <laughs> over people,
0: again. Go
10: ahead, Karen. Uh, that's ridiculous. No one is cheering for anyone to be further harmed, get sick, die from this, this virus. And I think we all would like to see Competent leadership. And I think this is an example. One of the things I saw for clips from yesterday were Republican senators asking questions, and you could hear in their voice their fears because they're hearing from their constituents who aren't buying what the president is saying. And this is the problem when you have a president who has a reputation for lying, when you really need to have confidence in your government. It's hard to believe and know what's the truth. And particularly when your lives are on the line, when your children's lives are on the line, where are you getting accurate information? I would, the second piece I would say is this also is an example of why you know Trump made this big play for um, taking on China and the trade agreements. But he walked away from the st- strategic economic dialogue that President Bush started, that mm-hmm. President Obama continued. So when you're not having those conversations about other issues, it means, and we're we've considered them, you know, sort of an adversary, then we're not having conversations with other countries. It can't just be talking to ourselves.
0: What do you think about the the response so far?
10: Well, I mean, I
11: think a a huge thing to look at in terms of the adequateness of this response is the fact that we are not even prepared to be able to test the amount of people that we need to. Uh, Something that other countries are doing are absolutely prioritizing that, and we're not. And I think... If we take a step back at a lot of people that are fearful of the Trump administration for good reason right now because of all of the lies, the disinformation coming out, this is the exact scenario that scares a lot of people is when you need extremely competent leadership with a healthcare system that already leaves millions of people off of it uh, it 's really, really scary for everyday Americans that aren 't getting the answers that they deserve on how to deal with this
0: and, issue. and Bill, apart from the politics of this, uh, I mean Sanjay Gupta is about as politically agnostic if not atheist as, as anyone I know, and he just says, look we don 't have enough places that are, te- that are able to test and we don 't have enough protective equipment for people uh, that's, and those are just facts
12: uh, as he reported look, these things are very hard to handle to manage from the federal government We, we had some things when I was in the White House and Especially getting—it's a very big government, getting it all coordinated and organized, dealing with fifty states. I mean, federalism is a wonderful thing, but in these cases, it makes things much more complicated. Um, so that should, the attitude should be one of humility from the White House, of determination, of urgency. President Obama, when he was dealing with Ebola, put Ron Klain in charge, a staffer who had great experience in, in the federal government, it was had the authority to really make things happen. He didn't go on fundraising trips to Florida. He didn't have the White House chief of staff, I bet if you look back in 2014, be at a political conference popping off about how the media is exaggerating this. Mike Mulvaney has no idea, has no idea where this is going. I don't have any idea where it's going the next month. And the right attitude is to say we're mobilizing all the resources of the federal government to be sober and and calm. like, Like declaring
5: a national health emergency.
12: Fine, I have Which no problem with five that. Five weeks ago. Yeah, and who, and who did he put in charge five weeks ago?
5: But Andrew Azar, the uh, Secretary of the Health and Human Alex, Alex, Alex Azar. Azar. And what happened two days ago? They ramped it up. They ramped it up as you guys are asking them to do. I mean, look. I'm not asking him anything. Just, what is this you make, guys? What is this you wanna, guys?
12: I was simply making a simple point. I'll tell you what but I the, mean by Do you, by you guys. think Mick Mulvaney was wise to say what he said today? Yes, I do. And let me tell really, you what why. Really, why? You think me, it's wise for me, Mick Mulvaney to say this thing's being exaggerated? Well, I will tell you what I mean. You think it's wise? You, you what, you what think I mean. this thing, You know that this thing's you guys being exaggerated. Have said, like, we
5: can't trust this president. We can't trust him. So so we start from a place of not trusting. I can't trust Democrats in the time of crisis when we need bipartisan people to come together have faith in what they're working on and work in good faith, you have people that say, how can we possibly trust the president and immediately start attacking him from a partisan perspective, then, then we're right back to where we are in every problem that, that we've ever had. Like, and so why would big- I believe that anyone who has a criticism of the president right now when you've been trying to impeach so, him, when you've been trying to go after every right. single thing he does, even in the face of a crisis where he does exactly what Obama did, it turns into a partisan Obama- fight. The signal that sends to millions of Americans like me is, you are not serious about protecting the country. You
12: are serious about scoring partisan points. And that's what I believe. But
10: President Obama well, did He's the not president. It doesn't matter what say.
12: I say. It doesn't matter what any of us on this panel says. Right. The question is what the president and his white chief of staff so, say.
0: We have to squeeze in a quick break. Everyone stay where you are. Could health workers be spreading the coronavirus? That's the question after a whistleblower claims... Some were sent to handle evacuees from Wuhan, China, without the proper gear or proper training. We're going to talk to the congressman representing the district where this allegedly happened. Stay with us. Continuing in our health lead, members of Congress are demanding answers from Trump administration officials after a whistleblower at the Department of Health and Human Services claims that more than a dozen workers who received the first Americans evacuated from Wuhan, China, may have lacked proper training or protective gear. That increases concerns, of course, that the health workers might have even played a role in spreading the virus. Joining me now is Congressman Mark DeCano of California, whose district contains the air reserve base in Riverside County, where this took place. Congressman, thanks so much for being here. So how concerned are you that these health workers might have inadvertently... Uh, played a role in, in spreading the coronavirus.
8: Well, I, I'm very concerned. The first 195 evacuees from Wuhan came to Riverside County. And I want to emphasize, there are no confirmed cases among the evacuees, the cohort of evacuees that I know of. But mm. that's one of my questions to HHS and CDC, is have you tracked these 195 evacuees uh, who, who did not show any symptoms? My concern is that not all of them were tested. I had assumed uh, that this cohort was accompanied by uh, public service uh, health workers uh, from HHS and that they were properly trained and that they were even equipped with protective equipment since they were on the plane. One so would I, think. And I'm not sure. I, I, I need, These are the answers that I need. Uh, and at our briefing, our bipartisan briefing this morning, mm-hmm. um, I posed that question, and it wasn't satisfactorily answered. Now, I don't want to put that as a as a pejorative or negative on uh, Dr. Kedlick or, or Dr. Redfield, both of whom I thought were very, um, ver- very uh, forthright and forthcoming when they, when they informed me uh, the day before uh, that the 195 passengers from Wuhan were going to arrive in my district.
0: So I guess one of the big questions is, how does this happen where healthcare workers dispatched by HHS... Don't have training or protective gear.
8: Well, you know, I, that's a question that I want to ask. I don't want to speculate. Um, I I will say that my office and my team, that we cooperated with the uh, Department of Health and Human Services uh, and the CDC, and we did our we did our part uh, to get information out. We we during the 14-day quarantine in Riverside County. We published a, a a bulletin every day uh, transmitting to our constituents, my constituents, mm-hmm. uh, what we knew and what we were able to learn uh, from um, the government sources. And it calmed people down uh, when they got information. It's so important for this government to keep credibility and to keep that faith with the American people. And I'm afraid that this is getting so political and so politicized, and the President of the United States, I think, is not demonstrating uh, the kind of leadership uh, that needs to be demonstrated. We need cool-headedness, level-headedness, and most of all, we need honesty and straight answers.
0: I agree. Uh, At least 50 residents in your district are quarantined over potential coronavirus exposure. More than 8,400 people in California are under similar quarantine across the state. Are you bracing for an outbreak in California?
8: Well, that's another question that I have. Are we prepared? Do we have the... Uh, the the facilities for uh, people to be isolated if uh, they uh, are testing positive for uh, coronavirus. So look, a couple of other things that came up today in this this morning's uh, Mm -hmm. uh, briefing uh, is the question of cost and whether people have adequate insurance, whether they have bought these skinny plans that are on waivers uh, by this government, by, by by this administration. Uh, people wanted to. there was a case of someone in Florida who thought they might have had coronavirus who went to get tested and then was slapped with a three thousand dollars bill. Uh. So that's you can see. and we've got in my district and adjoining districts mixed households of uh, citizens, uh, permanent residents, and undocumented uh, and if the public charge uh, that's hanging over their head that they if they if they use uh, um, public uh, public health facilities that that could be used against them in a immigration proceeding, uh, you can see how that's going to inhibit people yeah. uh, from getting treated. So there, there's a there's a, broad way, a broad array of public health concerns yeah. and policies that need to be reviewed in light of this potential emergency. It's
0: a real recipe for, for yeah. real potential disaster. Let's hope it doesn't come to that. Congressman Tacano, thank you so much for being thank here. You. Really appreciate thank you. I really uh, Bernie Sanders called on superdelegates to help him get the nomination in 2016, even though the pledged delegates were with Hillary Clinton. Might he regret that now, that his message seems to be the opposite? Stay with us. Senator Sanders' uh, 2016 delegate strategy is really getting in the way of his 2020 delegate strategy. Back then, even though Hillary Clinton led and pledged delegates, Sanders hoped to appeal to superdelegates to go with him, even though Hillary Clinton entered the convention clearly ahead. And as CNN's Ryan Nobles reports, That is not his current position, and this could be the making of an ugly floor fight at the Democratic Convention in Milwaukee.
6: As it stands now, Bernie Sanders leads the Democratic primary delegate count. Sanders has made it clear if he maintains that lead going into the Democratic Convention in July, he should be the party's nominee, even if he hasn't won the 1,991 delegates needed to clinch the nomination.
7: If I or anybody else goes into the Democratic convention with a substantial plurality, I believe that individual, me or anybody else, should be the candidate of the Democratic Party.
6: That position is different from the one he took in 2016, when he was trailing Hillary Clinton in the delegate count.
7: It is virtually impossible for Secretary Clinton to reach the majority of convention delegates by June 14th with pledged delegates alone. In other words, the convention will be a contested contest.
6: The rules for the 2020 convention, which Sanders helped to craft, are pretty clear. In order to win the Democratic nomination on the first ballot, a candidate must have earned a majority of available pledge delegates, or 1,991 delegates, through the primary voting process. If a candidate falls short of a majority on the convention floor, it moves to the second ballot. And in this round, all 3,979 pledged delegates plus an additional 771 superdelegates who are elected officials and party leaders will be free to vote for any candidate they wish. Already, Sanders and his campaign are warning that if it gets to the second ballot and he is in the lead and the delegates change their vote, it could backfire on the Democratic Party.
7: I think that will be a serious, serious problem For the Democratic Party.
6: But in 2016, Sanders argued the opposite, suggesting that party leaders should assess which candidate had the best chance of winning in November.
0: The question is just a simple yes or no. Should the person with the most pledged delegates be the Democratic nominee? You got
7: 700 superdelegates. And I am not a great fan of superdelegates, but their job is to take an objective look at reality. And I think the reality is that we are the stronger candidates. And now Sanders' rivals are seizing on his shift. Can you explain why the will of the
6: voters should not matter if no candidate reaches a majority of delegates?
10: So you do know that was Bernie's position in 2016.
6: And signaling they won't cede the nomination to him if he's not won a majority of the delegates.
10: When uh, we were putting toge- they were putting together the 2016 platform for the Democratic Convention, those are the rules that he wanted to write.
6: And, and to be clear, the Sanders campaign is not suggesting that the rules change. And they do believe that Sanders will earn the majority of the delegates by the time they get to Milwaukee. But what this amounts to is a PR com- campaign, a not so subtle message to those delegates and super delegates that if Sanders has the most delegates when the convention rolls around in Milwaukee, he should become the nominee or things will be very difficult for the Democratic Party to unify as they head into the November election.
0: Jake. All right. Ryan uh, Nobles uh, with the uh, Sanders campaign in South Carolina. So, uh, Alexander, let me start with you as a progressive who supports both Warren and Sanders uh, for the nomination. uh, He has seemingly changed his position on this. Um, Why is it okay for him to change his position now, do you think, considering back then he was saying, look, if Hillary Clinton doesn't have the majority, I'm going to make the case to superdelegates they should support me, even though I'm behind?
11: Well, I mean, the rules were completely different in 2016 in that superdelegates actually were able to vote on that first ballot. That is different from 2020 in which the superdelegates are now able to vote on the second ballot. And so I think that the context, as someone who worked on the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign, from the very beginning, superdelegates had come out from Hillary Clinton. So I think the Bernie Sanders campaign, like other candidates right now, are taking positions where even if it's not a plurality or majority of the delegates, they might also go into a contested convention. Uh That is, you know, the Bernie Sanders was trying to operate in 2016 when there was two people there. So I don't think it's uh, that big of a change. I think it's politicians seizing on moments uh, for the Democratic frontrunner. And, you know, it's another moment where
10: it shows the strength. It's very politically craven. I mean, Senator Sanders is acting like a politician. He is now the frontrunner, so he wants the rules that will work better for him. That's what it feels like. It's so disturbing, too, because having also worked on not just Hillary's campaign, but on the platform, Committee. I mean, there was so much work done to try to accommodate Senator Sanders, and so many changes were made, ironically, to the caucus system, which ended up being problematic. And specifically, this whole change on superdelegates, this is what he wanted. And here it is, and now he's saying, oh, no, 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 I don't want to follow those rules because it's inconvenient for me. Sure, sure, but I think a lot of people
11: that I also know that are on the the Unity Reform Commission also tried to get to abolish superdelegates. That is Bernie Sanders' position, is to abolish superdelegates because they are not a democratic way of being able to do things. And now the compromise position for that was to have the scenario that we have right now. So I think it's also equally as disingenuous to be able to suggest that he is taking a stance here that's different when he wants to abolish delegates.
10: But can we just be honest? Going into the convention, it wasn't just that she had more delegates and superdelegates. She had three million more votes. So if we were going to go by... And guess what by- he did?
11: He decided to campaign with her in 26 different rallies. So I think that so he got behind and rallied line. with you went through this. Hillary Clinton.
5: Yeah. You I went through did. this with the Republican convention in right. 2016. Yeah. Well, we don't have super superdelegates. We let the voters decide and we don't give extra weight to someone because they happen to be a former elected official in the establishment to kind of fix the process. And mm-hmm. so... For me, as a Republican watching this, I think Senator Sanders is consistent because his consistent message is don't steal this from me. Mm -hmm. What do you think? That's his consistent message both times. Don't have the DNC chair have to resign the night before the convention because it's being stolen from me. What do you think of
12: it all? (laughs) The Trump campaign is doing its best to promote Sanders. And and Mike's doing that now (laughs) because they think they can beat Sanders most easily. But, you know, it's all this delegate talk. is nice. Half a million South Carolinians are going to vote tomorrow. Yep. Uh, The first primary, not a caucus, in a truly diverse state, and let's see what the results are. Let's see whether we're so confident after that that Senator Sanders is cruising towards a majority or even a very high plurality in delegates.
0: Okay, let's do that. We'll see that, and then we'll (laughs) we'll reconvene. Everyone, stick around. Republican outrage over President Trump's peace deal with the Taliban to end America's longest war. That's next. Stay with us. Our world lead now, top Republican lawmakers voicing their fears about the pending peace deal with the Taliban expected to be inked tomorrow in Qatar with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on hand. In a letter to Pompeo and Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, 21 members, including the chair of the House Republican Conference Liz Cheney, write the Taliban is a, quote, terrorist group that celebrates suicide attacks, adding, quote, we are seeking assurances that you will not place the security of the American people into the hands of the Taliban and undermine our ally, the current ally, the current government of Afghanistan. The Afghan government says the agreement could give a victory to the jihadist group. CNN's Barbara Starr is at the Pentagon for us. Barbara, what is expected from this peace deal and what might it mean for U.S. troops in Afghanistan?
3: Well, Jake, the idea is that right now, if this all works, the U.S. will be able to draw down, bring some troops home rather quickly. Twelve to 13,000 there right now come down to 8,600 troops in Afghanistan still there to fight the remnants of al-Qaeda and ISIS. That's the whole idea if all of this works. They ink the deal tomorrow, that's the schedule. But on this question of secret annexes, there may be good reason for Congresswoman Liz Cheney to be asking these questions because right now, none of the documents have exactly been made public. The world has not seen what everybody, especially the U.S., plans to sign. There are indications, the administration says, we're not entering into some new cooperative relationship with the Taliban. But a lot of questions, a lot of worry. Look, it has been a very long war. This is a war that ends with diplomacy. More than 2000 troops killed in this war. Jake
0: and Barbara, speaking of U.S. service members, Secretary of State Pompeo uh, was on Capitol Hill today and he was questioned extensively uh, by Democratic Congressman Brad Sherman about how the president downplayed the impact of a very serious Problem, traumatic brain injury. This was, of course, after the Iranian strike in Iraq last month uh, affected uh, more than 100 U.S. service members uh, causing TBI.
3: Well, you know, here at the Pentagon, we just had a lengthy briefing from a top military doctor about what the military is trying to do to help troops suffering from these injuries. And then we had Pompeo today, which made it very bizarre to listen to his tone. Have a listen to that exchange on Capitol Hill.
6: Nineteen days after uh, that it, those injuries, the President said, "I heard they had
7: headaches. I can report it 's not very serious. Thirty of them are still in the hospital. All of them will be suffering their whole lives. Do you want to take the
6: opportunity here today to apologize to those service members for trivializing their injuries um- Mr. Congressman, I, I've never trivialized the
0: injury. Wait, wait, but any, do you want to apologize on behalf of the administration for trivializing their
6: injuries? Yes. Sir, I've never trivialized any injury. We take seriously every American service member's life. It's why we've taken the very policies in Iran that we have.
3: Well, look, what we have right now is about 112 troops reported. With mild traumatic brain injury, thankfully, many of them have been able to return to duty. Jake?
0: All right, Barbara, start at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. Tune in this Sunday morning for CNN's State of the Union. I'm going to sit down with Vice President Mike Pence to discuss the latest on the White House response to the coronavirus. And we're also going to have Democratic presidential candidate, former Vice President Joe Biden, fresh off whatever happens tomorrow in South Carolina. It's all at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. Questions about CDC screening as there's...